Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, with a message titled, He Has No Rivals. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I don't know if you like competition. You know, when it comes to sports, I find that if there's a team in a given league that always wins the championship or most often wins the championship, I simply lose interest. I love rivalries, close games, with a great exertion or effort required for success. Same's true in business. I mean, the hallmark of a free market economy rather than a government planned economy is that products are developed and sold, but that others are doing the same thing. And so a competition develops in terms of quality, the price of goods, the ability to adapt what is being developed to the best needs of the consumer. Well, competition makes for a better product. It serves the consumer very well. Now that's true in sports and in business. Is it true in everything? You know, for instance, would it be true in love and marriage? I mean, what if every marriage had rivals competing for the affection of your spouse? Would that make your marriage better or worse? Well, I argue that competition in marriage devastates trust and love and intimacy and so forth. Well, how about competition in our faith? And here I don't mean church shopping or church switching and so forth. I mean competition in terms of the things that matter most. That is, what is the ultimate purpose in life? And for what purpose were we created? What is it that matters most? You know, in such a competition, people choose to waste their lives or, or make the most of their lives. They may live their lives for temporary pleasure, or they might live their lives for something that's lasting and eternal. But here's the big question. If one chooses to live one's life for what is lasting and eternal, is there a competition out there for that? Are there various choices for what's of eternal worth? And the answer from the book of Hebrews is, there is not. Let's get back to what we've learned in our introduction to this book. Hebrews is a sermon written out to a group of primarily Jewish Christians who, because of intense persecution, had been tempted to return to their roots in Judaism and abandon their newly found Christian faith. You see, if they returned to Judaism, they would live under the protection of laws enacted for their benefit. But if they were to remain thoroughly Christian, there were no laws in place. And that was the struggle of ancient Jewish Christians. And even though their struggle was very different from what we face today, yet in some fashion, their struggle is not so different from what every one of us faces. I mean, for one, there's always a cost to pay for following Christ. It might be persecution in some form, or it might be in some form of an ethical choice that might mean financial loss, or it might mean that one is forced to reject the values of culture in which one lives for the sake of Christ. It might mean the loss of family. Following Christ always bears a cost, and that cost has to be considered. And then comes the decision, will I pay the cost? I might then think, what is it in the Christian faith that makes it worthwhile to pay that cost? Does the Christian faith offer me something I can't get anywhere else? And so we're ready to begin our study of the book of Hebrews. The first four verses of the book, which in Greek constitute one sentence, is really a a stunning way to begin the book. It's as if the preacher takes a deep breath and then without pausing for another breath, begins with one massive statement. As soon as he's made that, everyone's completely engaged. What a way to start. So let's read those four verses, verses one to four. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. See, that one sentence is supposed to arrest our attention, bring us on board at the beginning. It's directed to Jewish believers in Christ. Notice the opening affirmation of the Jewish scriptures, scriptures that were written you know, over 1,100 years and that came to completion over 400 years before the book of Hebrews was written. Long ago begins the sermon, long before your time, God has spoken. And that in itself is arresting enough. God's not silent. He's not only spoken, he's left a record of his speech. In short, when we think of the speech of God, we're not talking about everyone's subjective opinion of what God might have said. Rather, we're looking at an objective record of God's activity and his words. So when did God speak? Well, at many times, this over and over again throughout history, from the time of Moses to the time of Malachi. Now, in the case of Moses, God revealed to him events that date back to the foundation of the world. God has spoken. He's left a revelation of himself until that revelation was completed somewhere around 430 BC when Malachi finished his book. But then adds the preacher, he spoke in many ways. Indeed, indeed he did. That would include God's voice thundering from Mount Sinai, giving his Ten Commandments, and having his prophet Moses writing down those words to be read by all successive generations. That would also include historical narratives, what happened in history. It would include the careful writing down of miracles, of theophanies, in which God allowed his glory to be seen. But it also came when Solomon wrote words of wisdom, or when Isaiah and others spoke to others on behalf of God, God's speech came in a variety of ways. And by the way, that's the heritage of the Jewish people and the Jewish faith. They have the objective words of God, and for that reason, one might think for a Jew to return to his or her former Judaism, whatever they were giving up, it couldn't have been that much because they have such a great inheritance. Well, the preacher's not done. In these days, that is, very recently now, he says, within the lifetime of the people hearing my sermon, God spoke in a way that he had never spoken before. He has spoken not through the voice of a prophet. He's spoken to us in his son. That had never happened before. And what's the value of such a revelation? If one passes up on that, what would you lose? And in response, the writer of Hebrews gives us seven descriptors of the son. Now, just before we dive right in and discuss each one of the seven, please note that the number seven in Judaism is significant. Indeed, by giving seven descriptors of the Son, the writer gives us the number of perfection, the number of completion. The point is, the Son has no rivals. And what's also fascinating as we continue to study, when we come to verses 5 to 14, the writer then goes on to give us seven First Testament quotations that are fulfilled in Jesus. He means to point out that you really can't discuss the voice of God or the speech of God or the revelation of God without noticing who it is that perfectly sums up everything. Everything in the First Testament finds its fulfillment in the Son. This is not true of the prophets, but it is true of the Son. Very well, let's look at the seven characteristics of the Son that make him different from any previous speech of God. Number one, 
The son was appointed the heir of all things. And here, most likely, Hebrews is alluding to a well-known messianic psalm. It's Psalm 2, verse 8, where God says to the coming Messiah, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Notice that here. The father is telling the son to ask something of him that no one else can ask. That is, unlike Moses or Abraham or any prophet, no prophet was told that he could inherit and rule over the nations of the earth. Joshua, for instance, was told to conquer the promised land, but certainly not the earth. But the writer of Hebrews takes it one step further. He speaks of the son inheriting all things. And the all things, well, now there's no doubt about that. All things refers to the entire created order. That means the universe, that everything that God has created. The Son is destined to set his throne in the center of all of creation and rule over the whole thing. Number two, the next characteristic of the Son that makes him different from all the prophets that preceded him is that it is through this Son that God made the universe. And I want you to notice that there's a distinction being made between the Father and the Son. You know, I think that it was Paul in his letter to the Colossians that said it very well. It's found in Colossians 1.16. For by him, that is, by the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Notice then there's a distinction between the role of the Father and the role of the Son in the creation. The Father is the source of the creation. It is from the Father that creation comes. But the Son is God's agent in the creation. When the Father created, he spoke a word, and it is the Son who is that word which the Father spoke. The Father planned and ordered the creation, but the Son is the one through whom the creation came to be. Again, we're saying something that really needs no repetition. You know, of no one else has such a thing ever been said. Not the First Testament prophets, not the Buddha, not Mohammed not Joseph Smith of the Mormons, no one else. To say such a thing of someone is to say that which has never been said in the past and is still not said with any seriousness of anyone today, but it is said of the Son. He was the one through whom the Father created the world. Back to the Bible Canada exists to bring you into a transformative relationship with Jesus. And we're so encouraged to hear just how this is happening for those who listen to Dr. John's daily Bible teaching program. Kaylee recently shared, I am thankful for the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ written in God's holy word, taught by Dr. John Newfeld. The word is clearly taught and my walk with the Lord is deepened in him as I listen. If, like Kaylee, you've been impacted by this ministry or, or someone you know has been impacted by it, we'd love to hear from you. Remember to touch base with us at 1-800-663-2425 or for more information about Back to the Bible Canada, go to backtothebible.ca. We've looked at two of the seven descriptions of the sun. He's the one that inherits all creation, and he's the one through whom all creation has come to exist. To simply say those two things might be enough, but it's not. Number three, 
The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, those seem to be two separate phrases, but in truth, they both stress the same thing. Start with the word radiance. That is, the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance speaks of the brightness of light. A light and its brightness are so closely associated, it's impossible to separate them. But there's something else here. The writer of Hebrews could have said the sun is the reflection of the light of God, but he doesn't say that. He says the sun is the radiance of the glory of God. So think of it this way. When you look at the moon on a clear night, you see it's bathed in light. But that light doesn't emanate from the moon. Rather, that light is reflected. It's the light of the sun that we see in the light of the moon. But that's not so with the Son of God. He's not the reflection of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the very glory itself. Now go to the next metaphor. He's the exact representation of his being, and the Greek word is the word character. Now that word can be thought of in terms of, you know, form or likeness or even image. So think of it this way. Imagine a stamp of a Roman emperor. Now imagine that stamp is pressed down on a coin resulting in the fact that the stamp and the image that comes out of it are identical. And that's what the Son is. He is the exact, trustworthy, and faultless representation of the Father. Yeah, Jesus actually said that about himself when he said, if anyone has seen me, he has seen the Father. So the point is made. Even while the Son is distinct from the Father, In terms of glory or in terms of the attributes of the Father, the Son has all of the attributes of the one and only God, even as the Father has those attributes. The writer of Hebrews is still not done. Number four, the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, what does that mean? Well, I've already quoted Colossians 1.16, where we read that the Son created all things, and then we come to Colossians 1.17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is, the continuity of the universe depends upon the Son. Moment by moment, he wills that it should continue. Now, a number of theologians have pointed out that the idea here is the idea of governmental authority. At each moment in time, the Son is managing the universe or managing the created order. There's so much that can be said about that, but I think we do well here to apply this concept to sovereignty, rulership. So who rules the world? Does anyone do so? Or do various competing rulers rule over a slice of the world or the universe? And the answer, says Hebrews, is that the universe is not governed by Rome or by the religious leaders in Jerusalem or by the philosophy of the Greeks or by the economics of the traders of the world who oversee finances and the movement of goods. The world and the universe at each moment is governed by the very same one who created it. That is, he didn't just create the universe. At each moment, he directs its movement and also the decisions that are made within it. He is the world's rightful ruler. And that's why one of the titles that is given to Jesus is that he's king of kings and that he's lord of lords. Yeah, the king and lords do make decisions in this world, but they do so only at the permission of the Son. Now, we could stop here and ask the Hebrew Christians why they were so afraid of persecution. Did they misunderstand who was the ultimate king and lord? And that same question has to be asked of us. Are we aware in our troubles, in the things that threatened us, who it is that upholds the universe by the word of his power? Move on to number five. The son is the one who has made purification for sins. Now, this one line is rich in meaning. 
Indeed, as we're going to see when we eventually get to Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, that the book dedicates two whole chapters to that one statement. But behind this is also the surety that the sacrifices that were offered by the temple priests in Jerusalem have now been made void and are outdated. By his one sacrificial death, a one-time complete and perfect offering was made to God the Father, and now the sin question has been dealt with once and for all. So you think of the world's religions. Buddhists and Hindus speak of karma, in which you have to do something to secure a better future. Muslims speak of you know good deeds that have to outweigh your bad deeds. In all these things, the question of human failings, our shortcomings, which really speak of our sins against our Creator, they are held in the human consciousness. How can any man or woman, boy or girl, be made right with their Creator? And the answer is not found in the temple, because as we're going to see in this book, all the temple could provide was a reminder of sins. But Jesus the Son had provided a sacrifice that was perfect, and the human sin question was permanently dealt with in his cross. Number six, the Son is sat down at the right hand of the Father. And this is another allusion to a First Testament passage, another messianic psalm. It's Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. You see, Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And there at the dwelling place of the Father, he sat down at the Father's right hand. And that would mean at least two things. It means the Son has received a place of superior honor, indeed a place of ultimate honor. No one's permitted to sit at the Father's right hand, for that's the place of power and honor. But the Son has done just that. He's done what no one else can. And it's for that reason that Christians can never speak of Christ as merely a prophet. Now he's more than a prophet. He's the object of our worship. We're forbidden from worshiping anyone other than God. It's the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But the Son is the object of our worship, for we cannot worship the Father rightly unless we also worship the Son who is equal to the Father and worthy of all praise. You know, Jesus himself insisted on that. John 5, to 23. For the Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you don't worship Jesus, you don't worship God rightly. Yeah, of course, it is true that when long ago the prophet spoke in various ways, this had not yet been made clear as it would be later. But it's also true that when the three men approached Abraham in the heat of the day, one of those three men was God himself in the form of man. There are a number of examples of exactly that in the First Testament. You know, I might refer to Isaiah 6, other places. But now that the Son has come bodily, His identity has been clearly revealed. He is worthy of all honor and glory, even as the Father is worthy of all honor. So let's move on to the last and seventh description of the Son. Verse 4 says that the name the Son has inherited is superior to the name that is inherited by the angels. You know, after all these breathtaking descriptors of the Son, we might wonder about this last one, the comparison of the Son, not to the prophets, but to the angels. And the answer seems to be that the mention of angels comes up frequently in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2 verse 2 indicates that the message of the Old Testament was sent by angels. Indeed, the law itself was given through the mediation of angels. Angels are God's messengers as well as his warriors, sent out by God to do his bidding. 
You might think of Jacob's ladder as he sees angels descending to earth, having come from God's presence and given assignment to perform on the earth. Then he sees angels ascending the ladder, having completed their assignment, going back to heaven. They will report to God. I'll say a lot more about that tomorrow, but, but let's conclude. This book, the book of Hebrews, written to people who wondered what price they were willing to pay in order to remain in faith to Jesus. Hebrews begins by describing this Jesus. He's the one, the only one who has no rivals. His superiority and worth far outshines the worth of all other things. And that leaves us with a natural point of application. If you've never come to Christ and you're considering Christ as your Savior and Lord, the place to begin your consideration is to begin by asking just how valuable he actually is. And if you're in the faith today and you're paying a high price for your commitment to Jesus, you want to consider the same question. Just how valuable is the person of Jesus? So think about it this way. How valuable is your comfort? How valuable is your wealth? How about your reputation? How about your very life itself? Or how valuable is Jesus? You see, the consideration of the nature of the Son, the preciousness of having him, well, that's not just one question that we might ask. Listen, it's the only question. If you lost Jesus, what would you have lost? If you answer that question rightly, you'll know with certainty whether you'll be faithful to him unto the end and whether to know him is more valuable than all the earth has to offer. Answer the question well, you'll remain in your faith. Thanks, John. You know, I'm wondering, do you think there's even Christian people who don't understand who Jesus really is? Well, in this day in which um, there's so much biblical illiteracy and uh, there's also, um, I'm going to say, theological illiteracy, uh, I'm amazed um, at the basic doctrines of the Christian faith that many don't understand. You know, for years I had many pastoral interns that I processed through that, and we would just go through you know, understanding what all the Christian doctrines are and make sure that these people understood them. And, and most of the time, Bible college grads even, would say, I'd never gone through the major Christian doctrines, and so I, I just don't even know, you know what the, the truths of the faith are. Now, if that's true, if, of people going into pastoral ministry. I'm assuming it's true all over the place. So yeah, Ben, there are many people who have never come to terms with what is the nature of Christ, and they need to review it. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. It's hard to believe the time has come again, but Back to the Bible Canada is closing out another fiscal year. And that means we've already begun to lay the groundwork for another year of sharing God's Word from coast to coast across the nation. To finish well and enter the next year positioned for effective ministry, our goal is to raise $325,000 by June 30th. To help reach this goal, Generous friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift this month, dollar for dollar, up to $100,000, doubling the impact of your donation. So consider joining us this month. 
Your gift means so much as we strive together to continue to present God's Word in truth to the world. To send a gift, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And one last note, thank you in advance for your gracious partnership.